one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. Alright, and welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 508 for the week of Monday, March 11th, 2013. We thank you so much for bearing with us during our two-week break-off. I think we're all refreshed and ready to go now, and by we, I mean the people joining us here tonight, and that is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Kicking the tires and lighting the fire, Sawyer. How you doing? <laughs> I'm doing great, and I can't think of a rhyme at the moment. And welcome as well, Mark Ratterman. Nothing fancy for me this time. Good to be here, and I'm ready to go. I am too. Now, obviously, over the last two weeks that we were off, I mean, a lot of space news happened. And this first one, we covered on Twitter as best as we could with a lot of updates. And that was the SpaceX CRS-2 launch. That is their second official resupply mission to the International Space Station, and that successfully launched to the station on Friday, March 1st, 2013, at 10.10 a.m. Eastern Time. Now, everything seemed to be going fine until it got into orbit. After a beautiful launch, there was a problem with a bunch of boosters, and... This is <laughs> this is an interesting situation and a lot of miscommunications at the time that this went on. Gene, can you explain what happened? Well, uh, first off, congratulations to SpaceX for uh, fixing the, uh, the Falcon 9 issue. If you remember on CRS-1, one of the Merlin 9 engines had a little bit of a, you know, little bit of an issue shut down and uh, it looked like it kind of sort of fell apart in a way. Um, SpaceX went ahead and fixed that. Uh, they were a little tight-lipped again about what exactly the fix was. I believe it was Gwynne Shotwell, the president of uh, SpaceX, basically said that uh, they're still checking with the State Department to make sure that they can release what they can release. Again, um, you know, ITAR restrictions, the whole bit. But again, whatever it was, it, it, they repaired the, the Merlin 9 engine. It worked just fine. Uh, Falcon 9 delivered uh, the, uh, the Dragon spacecraft to low Earth orbit and uh, did so remarkably well. So congratulations there. However, um, just after separation, in fact, I was I was closely monitoring the uh, the event and uh, I was waiting uh, to hear that the solar panels had unfurled and uh, NASA Television began running. You know the, the launch replays, and we were just still glued to our, our, you know, glued to the computers or the televisions, whatever it was, trying to find out what really was going on because we hadn't really heard that the solar panels had unfurled. Um, then uh, I, I noticed on on Twitter that that folks were saying that there was a problem, 
And I kind of figured that there was something wrong because it was taking an exceptionally long time to get that confirmation. As things turned out, it really wasn't the solar panels per se. It was actually the the four um, the, the thruster pods that were on uh, on Dragon itself. Uh, those thruster pods, uh, you need. There are about four of them all together, I believe, Sawyer. And uh, you need at least three working to approach the International Space Station. As things turned out, there was only one at the time functioning. And uh, it was determined after a very long, after a, well, not exactly a long time, that uh, maybe one of the, uh, uh, the oxidizer lines either, either got frozen in some manner or one of the, uh, the valves just kind of seized up on three of the lines. And they began tweaking those valves on and off to see if uh, uh, things would, would clear up. Eventually they did. And uh, Dragon uh, got the clearance to uh, to approach the ISS not so- soon after that, after one day of basically testing on Saturday. But uh, um, one of the curious things that occurred during the whole thing was the way it was handled from a public relations and a, and a public affairs and, and information standpoint. And again, this is something that <laughs> I guess commercial space all in all, and I hope the others are kind of watching and seeing what happened with this, they really have to learn how to deal with, with, with us press types that are, that are eager to get information out. Because somehow or other, that information wasn't really, really forthcoming. In fact, the only way we were getting anything was through Elon Musk's smartphone. He was posting on Twitter some bits and pieces of information and not even NASA's press office had it. They were also sort of living and dying by, by Elon Musk's cell phone. Um, I, I don't think that's, that's, that's a really cool way to run things. Uh, even if you don't have information, even if you, you, you don't have something, you have to go ahead and put something out and say, we know we're aware of the issue, we're working it, uh, further, inf- further data uh, will be presented as it becomes available. And uh, and you and you fire out all the information that you can do at that point, but that's not exactly what they were doing. They were kind of just sort of hiding behind the boss. Right. It, it's funny at the actual post-launch press conference, they were literally reading Elon Musk's tweets. Yeah, exactly. Um, they, you know, that was just it. I mean, I, I will congratulate Musk at the end of this thing, you know, at the end of the whole thing he wrote, and I'm quoting, just want to say, you know, thanks to NASA for being the world's coolest customer looking forward to delivering the goods. This was right <laughs> after, this was right after, you know, the troubleshooting and all that had occurred, uh, uh, on, on, uh, on, on, uh, March 1st, but, um, one, yeah, I mean, we just seem to be living and dying by the boss's tweets, which I guess is, you know, fine, you know, fine and dandy. But, you know, the, the way to really solve this, with all due respect, and, and I'm not trying to tell SpaceX how to run their business, but I, I, I hope to God somebody's listening. Um, you actually have in the SpaceX Launch Control Center something what, like NASA has. You have a PAO sitting somewhere in there. And that PAO may not be able to go live on the internet or something like that to put out an, out any information, but uh, he or she could have, say, your Facebook page, your website with you know with the the, P, the, the public affairs page opened up and and, and writing a uh, a release right then and there, just just updating things, what's going on and what might be happening. 
this way, at least it's official, you know, and it, and it looks like you're, you're really, really trying to disseminate information and you're not allowing the boss basically to do your work for you. <laughs> I, it, was, it was just just an odd way of doing things. I mean, I, I mean, yeah, true. Welcome to the, to, to the brave new world of commercial space and welcome to the brave new world of new media. So in a way, uh, new media kind of kind of won the day, if you will, through Twitter. But does, you know, the, the I, sorry, I don't know if, if, if the folks you were talking to were kind of speculating on the same thing, but I was talking to several other, you know, uh, folks in the media. You know, we were watching this thing. We were trying to figure out what really was going on. I mean, we had a lot of you know, doomsday scenarios in our heads. You know, we were thinking loss of mission at least um, and and possibly loss of cargo if they didn't get this straightened out. And, um, you know, in, in the post-launch press conference uh, about three o'clock, uh, Elon Musk didn't really call, he called this, you know, he didn't really think this was, this was that big a deal. But, you know, it, you almost, you, you still had this, this, this issue and you still had this thing and you still have to figure out what happened. They'll figure it out. You know, I mean, they, they did a, a, a bang up job on, on the Merlin 9 engine. And I mean, they, they, they figured out what went wrong there. And I'm sure, uh, I'm sure they had a little help from their customer to figure it out. But uh, um, it, whatever fix they employed, it worked. Uh, you know, hats off to the Falcon folks that uh, uh, you know fabricate the Falcon Nine. It worked wonderfully, and uh, hats off to the Merlin Nine folks. They also uh, worked wonderfully. And to to just give them a hats off a little bit um, on this one. Yeah, they had a problem, all right, but they were able to solve it while while on orbit within four tells, hours. <laughs> yeah, and and that tells well. They were able to go ahead and pr- and 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 prove, you know, within about a day or so, that their space that their spacecraft was healthy enough to approach the ISS. So, and I'm not going to be down. I'm not going to be, you know, a, a Dennis Downer on them completely. They they did some. They 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 proved that, you know, uh, you know, stuff happens in space. Space flight is hard. If anything, that's the takeaway from this. You know, even though you know we've been doing low Earth orbit for what fifty plus years, it is still a difficult endeavor to 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 do, and this little gotcha really really proved that point. But it also proved that SpaceX understands its own vehicle. They understand the vehicle they built. They understand how to troubleshoot the vehicle while it's on orbit, and they understand how to go ahead and make necessary you know, ground type repairs to the vehicle while it's aloft. So it, it was in a way, um, another, you know, hats off to them because again, they got the same type type of kudos for the, uh, for the Merlin nine issue after it was also proven, proven to, to function on CRS two. So, um, it, they're learning a lot about the vehicle they've designed while it's there and they're going to learn more about it on C on CRS three. And they will also learn, you know, more going forward that they can apply to the uh, to the piloted the dragon that's coming. I hope with, by 2015, 2016. The interesting thing we learned about the press conference, though, Sawyer, is that the piloted dragon's not going to have those solar panels. Yeah, sure. that that was interesting to learn, but you know, I, I can understand why. I mean, when you're talking about cargo flight, it's a little easier to use the solar panels and things like that. But when you're talking about manned flight, I mean. <laughs> When you've got these great ways of getting power that you don't need the solar for, why not use them? Because they're tried and true at this point. Well, I understand they're using a, a heavy-duty battery. Right. 
for the uh, for the piloted stuff. But I don't know. I, I'd still. I mean, the Soyuz has has its solar panels, and you're on orbit. I mean, you can generate power. You know, pretty much until the solar cells give out. So I don't know. Um, but it, it, we'll just see how Dragon evolves and how it progresses. But again, I think they're learning through these cargo flights a lot about the vehicle. And it's going to help them once the um, piloted dragon shows up. And it's going to help them out tremendously. So in a way, I think they've got a leg up on, uh, on the other guys because they're actually flying right now. Very true. We have yet to see or- Orbital has test fired their engines, but they have yet to fly an actual test flight. But I still have to go back to something that was said during the SpaceX test flight. They pretty much said, and obviously this is slightly different compared to now that they're operational, but they said, we're expecting failures. We're not expecting everything to work perfectly, and we'll learn from that, and we'll apply that. And I think that's obviously they've proved that, that they will encounter problems, but they will move forward. And like you said, this is an extreme hats off to SpaceX, and obviously I wish them the best. And just to add on, after the thruster pods were given the okay on Saturday, the Dragon did make its way to the International Space Station and was grappled Sunday at 5.31 a.m. Eastern Time and was then berthed to the space station at 8.56 a.m. Eastern and is expected to stay there until, as of right now, March 25th. Spaceflight is hard. This is difficult. And um, uh, you're, you're doing some really, really tough things. Even... Even though we've been doing low Earth orbit for, again, 50 years, this is difficult. So, you know, stuff's going to happen. And it has happened. I mean, we've, we've had issues with shuttle. We've had issues with Apollo. We've had issues with Gemini, Mercury, the whole bit. And, and the idea is you, you work through the problem you, you, and, and you plug through and, and you make sure that uh, you've got a su- successful mission. And uh, SpaceX did that on, uh, on, on the first. They really did. So hats off to them. Speaking of SpaceX, there was something I stumbled across a while ago that, uh, just for fun, I'm going to throw it in, and uh, has to do with an article that I saw on ReadWrite.com, and it refers to an Ask Me Anything that the SpaceX software engineers did. And the Ask Me Anything is a forum where people can literally ask the people that are participating in it anything, and it's a a text-based interactive uh, discussion that you see online. And one of the things that got my attention was the SpaceX software team said that if you want to, if you take the time and learn C++, that they will take you to Mars in five years. And they also, uh, there's some discussion about the different people that participate in SpaceX and some of their specialties and, uh, it's this uh, software team that they have is not an incredible army of people. They've got a flight software team of 35 people. They write all the code for the Falcon 9, Grasshopper, Dragon. They have an enterprise information system team that builds the internal software systems that make SpaceX run. They have a ground software team of nine people, and they have an avionics test team that writes software for testing their avionics hardware. And... Uh, the geek 
will rule one day, and I think the folks at SpaceX have got a handle on that for what they're doing and doing in a different fashion. I think those are really cool, those types of events, the AMAs, where you can actually get to speak to the people. And I, I, I thought I was reading through that, and I thought that was a really interesting one with the SpaceX guys. And I'd be a little dilatory in not mentioning that uh, just, uh, I believe, today, or over the weekend anyway, um, Elon Musk is sort of um, hinting that uh, um, it looks like the, the new uh, uh, space port for SpaceX is going to be based in, uh, in Texas. So, um, so I guess he's still talking about hanging on to KSC. But he also wants to go ahead and, and build this other facility over in, um, in Texas, I guess, to have multiple launches at any given time. So, you know, again, let's, let's just keep an eye on this and, and watch. And I believe, too, he demonstrated uh, the latest Grasshopper test at South by Southwest, too. Grasshopper, again, is, is, a, is a totally usable booster system. It's supposed to land by itself as each booster is sort of expended. I'm still sort of scratching my head at this one to try to figure out how, how it's going to be economical, but we'll just see what happens. Exactly. SpaceX keeping us all busy with lots of stuff coming out, so we'll be sure to keep up to date with everything that they're doing. Also, on that same day as the launch of CRS-2, another piece of news came out that kind of got kicked under the rug a little bit here. And this involved our good friend rover on Mars, Curiosity, the Mars Science Laboratory. Apparently, what happened was is that they had sent a command for the rover to send back some scientific information, and it didn't do it. So they commanded the rover as it was scheduled to to sleep, and it also did not do it. It was at this point that they realized that there was a memory glitch or something going on inside the main computer of the rover. It turns out that there is some corrupted data on board, which scientists are believing is because of space radiation that may have hit the computer. So what the plan currently is to do is to take the rover and to switch it over from its A-side computer to its B-side computer. Just to give you an idea, the two computers are nearly identical. It's just that the B-side computer was used during the transit part of the flight, and the A-side of the computer was used during landing and during mission operations. They're pretty much exactly the same. The B has been on standby this whole time. So the plan is to use a complex procedure which will switch main operations from A-side to the B-side computer, and at that point, they can resume their science. The A-side, it seems they will be able to wipe it clean and restart it again and use that as a good backup computer as B was previously. And as of right now, they have at least regained main antenna communications with it and no communication was lost and the rover was never in danger. Just an interesting thing that got kicked onto the rug because of SpaceX there that Curiosity had a little brain trouble. Yeah, the um, uh, one of the uh, the scientists uh, on uh, on this Ashwin, uh, uh, I believe is and, and and please, I'm going to botch his last name. I know it, so apologies in in, in advance here. Uh, Ashwin uh, Vasavada uh, basically told the uh, L.A. Times um, that the rover had a little bit of a amnesia episode, as he called it. And he did describe the process that you just described. And he basically said, we're, we're basically teaching the spare computer all the other 
other things that the other computer knew. It's the way the, the, the analogy he drew is, okay, you just bought a new, you know, uh, you just bought a new PC or a new Mac and you still have stuff on your old Mac. So we're going to transfer, but you want to transfer most of the software from your old Mac to your new Mac so you can use it and not worry about it. And that's what basically they're, they're in the process of doing right now is transferring all the old software over um, from the, from the uh, one computer that uh, got uh, a little singed by the, uh, by the solar flare to the, uh, to, to the B computer. Uh, and that one's going to basically uh, call the shots from, I believe, this point forward, sorry if I'm not mistaken. And yeah, it, this this just kind of like disappeared under the rug, so to speak. And poor poor Curiosity kind of got uh, you know kind of lost the limelight due to the CRS two uh, mission. But uh, um, they'll get Curiosity up and going in no time. Uh, in fact, I remember posting the story up on uh, up on Facebook, and and Veronica McGregor, who is uh, one of the public affairs officers over at uh, JPL, said, "Don't you worry, they'll get her they'll get her back going in no time." And sure enough, they did. So. Right, at this point, it's pretty much back to normal operations. They've obviously been doing it slowly in steps, but in no time, we'll be back to full-time operations with the rover, and as if this never happened, running on the B-side computer as the main one. But, you know, it's interesting, especially since this was a radiation-hardened computer, pretty much, that there's still something that was strong enough to get through it and just hit one bit of the computer to corrupt it. This is why you got to have some really good radiation shielding here, and uh, but uh, as uh, uh, the uh, aforementioned uh, Vashvada said, uh, uh, and I'm quoting here from uh, his uh, from the story in the L.A. Times, this is just the kind of situation you're happy that you've got a backup computer on board. So uh, yeah, it, this is why you you bring spares. This is why you do backups, um, and this is why you uh, you think of any eventuality. And um, the folks that designed uh, our, uh, our, uh, our, our little girl over on Mars, their curiosity, did a good, uh, good job in anticipating some things. So um, we still have the B, as you said, sorry, we still have the B computer. We're still in good shape. Um, and curiosity will go back and do some really, really bang up science. Exactly. It's the same reason why we here at Talking Space have a minimum of two recorders going for each episode and have had to use the backups many times before. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but that's a whole other inside story that you're probably not interested because in it's not space-related. But our technical woes represent those of Curiosity Rover and why backups are important. And Curiosity should be going back to its regular science in no time. And we're looking forward to seeing what it sends back. All right, so that completes round one of our trip around the table with our major, major news stories of the last two weeks when we were gone. And now we are just about getting ready to begin round two. And I will start off round two with a story similar to what we were just talking about with Curiosity. Except we're talking about something a little more ambitious. How'd you like to go to Mars by 2018? Even better. This could be better or worse, actually. How would you like to go to Mars with your spouse? Well, that's one of the plans that... Dennis Tito, who is the first tourist in space, is planning. They're trying to get a couple to orbit around Mars and return by 2018. This thing is a little adventurous and a little outlandish, but I think it's worth bringing up. And Gene, I know you have a very strong opinion on this one. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm kind of sort of tied. First, when I, when I heard about it, um, 
I, I, I was like, I, first off, a, a married couple, the most married, no offense guys. And, and, but you know, and, and, and Mark present company excluded, um, most married couples I know would probably go ahead. Um, uh, well, um, d- d- does the, tr- does the movie title, there will be blood mean anything to you? Um, there will, I mean, you've got first, let me go over the plan. Sawyer, the plan is to basically to use a, a modified um, dragon capsule attached to a Bigelow inflatable and fly that in tandem out to Mars. Now, now you're not talking a lot of room here. You're going to have two people in, in, in a cramped area, and, and this is just you know a 501-day mission um, out to Mars, and it's a flyby. Basically, you'll go ahead, you'll fly by, and, 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 and return. Um, first, the, the radiation problem as, as we, we so, you know, demonstrated with our last story, that is a huge deal. And I don't know how exactly Tito is going to go ahead and solve that problem. Uh, two, the big thing is the funding. I don't know where he's going to get the money for this. I mean, um, SpaceX was actually asked in the, um, CRS to pre-flight uh, launch briefing if they had anything to do with the project and Gwyn Shotwell said no we, we, we are not you know directly involved with with the Dennis Tito project inspiration one but you know if he's got his money we'll surely take it and and uh, and, and and he'll become a customer of ours so uh, you know it's to say SpaceX is involved in the project is you know the wrong they are not involved in the project um, but I, I believe that the game plan is to go ahead and take this, this tandem vehicle and to launch it out to Mars and swing it around. I don't know. They're just, I, I'm, I, I don't think you're going to make it by 2018. I just don't. Um, and again, even if you do, I think if you haven't really solved the radiation problems and some of the other issues for long-term space flight that the ISS is trying to solve right now, um, I wouldn't give a, a, a you know a, a fig about your chances out there. Um, this is as we just so highlighted. Um, Spaceflight is tough, and to go ahead and and put this you know sort of ragtag vehicle together, I don't know if you're going to make it. I'll, I'll be honest with you. Yeah, you probably will if it's if it's designed well. And, um, you know, it's, it's battle hardened and it's radiation hardened. You might have a, have a shot, but I don't know. I think we got a lot to learn before we get to Mars. I really do. I mean, I know people like, you know, Dr. Buzz Aldrin have, have endorsed this and, and a lot of other folks are, yeah, you know, let's, let's gung ho, let's do this. I'm not sure. I'm on the fence on this one, to be honest with you. I, I, I don't think that, this is really going to work. Number one, I don't think you're going to get the funding for it, at least not in this economy. Uh, you'd have to really get some really big, hardcore investors behind this, and I just don't see them lining up. Um, that's one. Uh, two, again, you have the sci- you know the scientific and engineering problems to solve. Um, can one Bigelow inflatable and one you know modified Dragon? get these gotten get a couple out there um 
that's 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 the technical issue. Two, again, the the other thing you've got the psychological issues. Yeah, married couple, fine, but even so, um, you still need a certain personality and a certain mindset for a long duration space flight. NASA will tell you this. It's you know it is it is a it is a given. Uh, some personalities will just simply, you know, work on a short-term flight like a space shuttle mission or something like that. Um, but for a long-term flight, you want a different type of personality. And you really got to be selective. And I don't know if you're going to find that married couple that's going to be that, you know, <laughs> that that compatible that, that this is going to work. Um, so it, 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 does this have a shot? Outside, I don't think so. I'll, I'll be honest. I mean, it's good. It, it's a good idea for for publicity. It's a good idea to to make people try to dream big and so on. But is this really something that is going to be on the pad on in 2018? I'll believe it when it is on the pad, and the calendar says 2018. I'll be honest with you. Cost wise, we're looking at. At least a billion dollars is what's estimated. They haven't released it, but estimates are about a billion, if not more. That's one thing. Two, again, the timing on this is a little adventurous. If we're talking maybe 2025, 2030, I can see that as a little more plausible. But 2018? I mean, think about it this way. The Axe-Lynx competition that they have going on, they're figuring by 2020. Just to give you an idea, and they're talking just low Earth orbit, let alone an orbit around Mars. This is adventurous. I hope it succeeds. But yeah, then again, anybody who has ever been in a relationship can probably attest to being stuck in an RV-sized space with the same person for probably a year and a half, if not more, with no chance of getting out. I don't think that's going to end very well. Yeah, I- I'm I'm with you, sir. <laughs> I mean it. <laughs> Just as a reminder of what that length of time is like, the uh, team that did the Mars 500 experiment, uh, I forget how many individuals it was, was it five or eight people that um, essentially got closed up in a habitat, but they, uh, they anyway, the crew closed themselves up in a fairly small area. They had individual quarters, so probably more luxurious than a spacecraft would be. And uh, they had a lot of challenges. They made it, uh, but it wasn't easy. And there were rough spots from what, what I heard about it. And I'm not out to uh, say bad things about it. They did the best they could. They simulated spaceflight. They had uh, varying lengths of delay with the amount of time that uh, they would, you know, radio transit time between Mars and Earth and the journey. And uh, as they got closer to home, it shortened up, and it was all, you know, pretty uh, a pretty good analog to, to what that would be like. They had mission control. They had, uh, you know, limited, uh, limited everything. And, uh, and they pulled it off, but it was not easy. So I don't know. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to try it. It, it, sorry, really, the bottom line, it really hinges on whether whether or not Dennis Tito is going to be able to go ahead and raise the funds for this. And, uh, you know, they're talking about a billion dollars. You have to remember, what was the price tag on Curiosity, about 1.5, 2, something like that? 2.5. Yeah, okay. Billion uh, with was, a B. Yeah, I, I, was in, I, was, I was in the neighborhood. 
Um, the um, you got to you know so when when you look at it that way, not all you know not all that expensive, but can Tito get people enthusiastic about this particular mission and this particular way to go? Um, I don't know. Can he raise a billion dollars by by you know twenty uh, you know four, by twenty fifteen on on the latest? So this way, all this stuff can be designed. Uh, I believe too that they're depending on the fact that Falcon Heavy is going to be ready, and that uh, they can modify a uh, a SpaceX Dragon uh, to deal with um, you know the the trip out and and basically act as the you know, play the role of the car with the uh, Bigelow inflatable, um, sort of playing the role of the uh, the trailer, if you will. Um, it's I, I, again, it, it really all hinges on whether whether or not Tito can raise the money. And I don't in this economy, I don't know. I, I don't think he's going to be able to do it. Well, this is indeed something that's interesting that will be worth keeping an eye on, and uh, we'll see if this goes anywhere especially if it goes to Mars. All right, then. So continuing along around the table, it goes to Eugene next. What do you have? Yeah, this is sort of, Sawyer, a, a, a topic that's kind of near and dear to my heart um, that we've talked about several times on this program and, and talked to a few experts in the area. Uh, this is in the uh, area of orbital debris. A, a group over in Bridgeport, Connecticut, uh, joint operation between the uh, Sawyer, between the Challenger Center over there and the University of, of Bridgeport. Uh, they have developed a small little nanosat that will be launched sometime within the next three years. I'm looking at an uh, article here from uh, ctpost.com, uh, posted yesterday, Sunday, March 10th. Um, it's, uh, they interviewed the, uh, the uh, director of education at uh, the Discovery Museum, there were the Challenger Center there, uh, by the name of Alan Wink, or uh, I believe that's the way his uh, name is pronounced. If I am mispronouncing it, I apologize. Um, this is going to be a, a small little little satellite that uh, will have some kind of value, and the idea is to go ahead and try to try to um, you know ch- test to see what the impact is like on on uh, on uh, of space debris up there. Basically, the heart of the heart of this little little nanosat, which will be about the size of a loaf of bread, according to the article, um, will be a piece of aerogel. Now, aerogel is a very very light, you know, block, you know, gel type stuff. I mean, I've held uh, this in my hand, and you could hardly feel it in your hand. I mean, it's 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 really really light material. It's the same type of material that they used, I believe, on one of the cometary missions um, to go ahead and trap cometary particles. And what they're hoping to do here is trap debris particles to see how it behaves as it hits the aerogel. Um, once a piece of debris hits the aerogel, a, um, a small laser is, uh, is going to go ahead uh, and illuminate the material. And a 3D camera is going to go ahead and photograph the track that the, the, particle, that the particle makes. And once that, that, that particle does hit the aerogel, the lasers make, make the measurement, the camera will go off. And folks at the uh, uh, Challenger Center will be able to go ahead and see that debris hit hit the aerogel in real time. So there is there is sort of a, an education uh, aspect to this, 
And uh, you know, again, it, it's 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 showing how um, you know science, you know, the the whole stem the whole stem uh, uh, aspect of this is being played out with real, honest to God application back home. So um, you know, again, I'm I'm looking forward to this particular experiment, and I'm going to try to see if we can uh, uh, get somebody from uh, from the center here to talk a little bit more about what they're going to do. I'll see what I can do about that. But yeah, this is. It's always great to see these small little nanosats and the CubeSats and the PicoSats and all these different ones going up because they're so small and in essence, in comparison, at least so cheap that anyone can get a chance to do it. And the fact that Challenger Center is obviously an organization close to my heart, having been with the Challenger Center for over five years now, I think it's great. And I'm looking forward to seeing the results come back and the fact that the museum and the center are going to be making these results available to people who walk into the museum. Yeah, that's that's the really really exciting part about about this whole whole thing, Sawyer, and and the really exciting aspect of it. It's to just go ahead and try to bring science home to people. And again, it's going to have some pretty practical ap- application to uh, to the uh, uh, plans of uh, orbital debris mitigation. So again, we're going to be watching the story and. Uh, uh, hats off to uh, both the uh, the uh, Dis- Challenger Center there in Bridgeport and the uh, University of Bridgeport for uh, for uh, making this experiment and looking forward to it uh, being lofted above us. Yes, indeed, and thank you, Gene, for keeping the nickname of the show, the Space Debris Podcast. All right, so to finish off round two around the table, we go to personally one of my favorite people to hear because he has some of the most unique stories. Mark, what do you have for us this time? Well, once again, I've been poking around online and stumbled across something that I know everybody already knows about. So that's why I'm going to tell you what you already know. But hopefully I'll find something that you uh, maybe spark your imagination and, and have you think, gee, I know somebody that might really be interested in this. This is the Google Science Fair 2013. It's not the first time they've done this. But the submissions for this Google Science Fair closed in 50 days from today as we record this, which is March 11th, 2013. Now, the Google Science Fair, you know, at first glance, I think, yeah, Science Fair, okay. I I think I sort of tried that when I was uh, in school, and and it I made something, and it didn't work, and it was fun, but it wasn't fun. And, well, I think this is considerably more fun than, than my own experiences, which were largely unguided. It's three steps. One, you enter. Two, you experiment. And three, you change the world. And that's from their website. If you just Google Google Science Fair, you'll end up on their page. There is a ton of information. It's about things like why it's an online science competition it's open to students between the ages of 13 to 18 around the world they have a science in action award that's sponsored by scientific american and it honors a project that makes a practical difference by addressing the environmental health or resource challenge they have an inspired idea award that is one that has the greatest potential to change the world based on votes from the public voting will take place during august of this year what is the Celebrate the School Prize? The Celebrate the School Prize recognizes amazing contributions of our winning teachers and schools. It awards a cash grant worth $10,000 toward classroom computing of a science lab equipment and an exclusive virtual field trip experience from our partner CERN, C-E-R-N. CERN is the people that bring you the LHC, the Large Hadron Collider. 
why is Google hosting it? They believe universal access to technology and information makes the world a better place. What prizes are available? Winners and finalists will receive a variety of life-changing prizes ranging from a 10-day trip to the Galapagos Islands with National Geographic Expeditions to a $50,000 Google scholarship to hands-on experiences at Lego, CERN, or Google. Prizes from each partner and much more. This is something that's really fun. They got a whole list of, uh, you know, what are the experiment guidelines? One is people are only human, handle with care. Two, using personal information. If you use anyone's personal information, it should only come from pre-existing publicly available resources. So they're out to protect people. They also say animals have rights. That's another experimenter guideline. Biological chemical substances. Be careful. Pay close attention here. Projects with biological agents, data, or testing are limited to pre-existing publicly available resources. So there's this whole list of guidelines. The thing is to get your feet wet, and this is what this does for students. So Google Science Fair, look it up, check it out, pass the word. Thanks. And, of course, that's something that's always worth looking up because kids these days, they don't say the darndest things, but they sure come up with some of the coolest experiments. So definitely take a look at that, and obviously if you have a child who's interested in this, be sure to let them get enrolled and get involved in science. All right, now to finish off our trip around the table on round number three, instead of doing three of our own stories that we came up with, we are going to cover three listener letters. We've been receiving a lot of letters from you guys, and we tried to answer as many, if not all of them, as we possibly can. Some of them are simple as technical questions, such as listening to these on your Android devices, which we've had a couple of, or getting the RSS feed so you can listen to it on your device. And those we will happily address too, but we love getting some of these interesting questions and topics to discuss on the show. So, we will go through a couple of them, and how about we start off with this one first. This is from M. Scott Worthington, and he wrote into our email address, which is mailbag at talkingspaceonline.com, saying that he loves what he's doing with the podcast, and he linked to an article on his site That is a series of three questions regarding the decision to downgrade the planet Pluto to dwarf planet status. As he says in the email, quote, My questions may lead you to consider a possible conspiratorial aspect, and I hope you can dig up the truth of who and why the decision was made. And the link to the website includes the following questions. One, I want to know the real why behind downgrading Pluto to a mere dwarf planet. Two, who are they anyway? And three, what do they have against Pluto, huh? So what do they have against Pluto? The they was the International Astronomical Union. I believe this this occurred, oh, wow. Um, 06, was it? Yeah, it was about 05, 06. And uh, they downgraded Pluto to a, quote, dwarf planet because they were trying to actually get an, get an idea of what really constituted the planet. And uh, a gentleman that I hope to, to meet in the not-too-distant future over at uh, – uh, Neaton over at the, uh, a conference here coming in um, uh, in late April, gentleman by the name of um, Dr. Michael Brown wrote an interesting little book in 2010. Quote: How I killed Pluto and why it ha- and why uh, why it had it coming. Uh, so I would I haven't really you know being the the uh, the space geek that I am uh, I haven't really finished the book unfortunately but. Uh, uh, it's, it's, it's on my to-do list. Um, but it's, um, it, it explains rather, rather explicitly why, 
uh, Pluto was downgraded and so on. Uh, it, it's still a little murky, in, in all honesty, in, in my, my mind, what exactly a planet is and what the definition of a planet is and so on. Uh, the only thing I can tell uh, to uh, Mr. Worthington is to sort of hang in there at least until New Horizons flies by in about 2015. So I have a funny feeling uh, when New Horizons does fly by that particular area, um, it's going to change the way we, we look at Pluto a little bit. So um, uh, we'll, have to, we'll have to see uh, if Pluto is reinstated by that, by that flyby. Uh, there is the outside chance it might be. So uh, we'll wait and see. But uh, the folks who are they was was the inter- was the International Astronomical Union, the IAU. Um, that's a partial answer, and I'll try to go ahead and get a better answer to you to you, Scott, uh, in in the not too distant future. Right. In essence, it involves its orbit, eccentricity, and its ability to clear its neighborhood around it, and a bunch of fancy things. But in short, it came down to, like you were saying, Gene, the definition of the planet. It came down to either they change the definition of a planet to include Pluto, and in doing so, then make our solar system have 14 planets or some bizarre number like that, or they make Pluto an exception, and they count it as a dwarf planet and exclude it from our current definition of a planet, and in doing so, prevent some of the other Kuiper Belt objects and other objects in the area from being classified as planets, such as Eris and all those other fun objects out there. So again, thank you very much for your letter, and let's move on to our next letter, which is from a good friend of the show who has sent us a couple of letters before, and this is from our friend Evan Burton, and he sent us a couple of them, and I think we'll answer this one on the show. And he says, uh, this may not be appropriate for the show, but I thought I'd raise it anyway. I was reading an excellent engineering development history of the X-15, and it mentioned how it utilized a retractable pitot tube extended just prior to landing. Side note, pitot tube is what measures speed. Continuing along. It also mentioned that the space shuttle had a similar arrangement where the pitot tube was extended prior to landing. This was news to me, and I found it an interesting little bit of trivia. That got me thinking. What other trivia is there about the space shuttle, engineering, technical, or otherwise, that's not widely known? Might be a good topic for discussion on the show. Keep up the good work and cheers. Thank you, Evan. And uh, Gene, I think you have a place that you can refer to him for this one. Oh, boy. Yeah, I sure do. Um, if you, Evan, if you go to iTunes, um, if, if you do subscribe to iTunes and so on, uh, I would probably recommend uh, you look up in uh, iTunes.edu, their little education section there. And uh, try to see if you can – I'm not sure if this is still up there. It should be. Um, look into the MIT catalog there on, uh, on iTunes EDU. And uh, a few years back, they had a very, very interesting uh, class about the space shuttle, its history, how it was designed, how it was built, uh, and so on. Um, I believe um, – uh, astronaut uh, Jeffrey Hoffman, who is an instructor at MIT, was the lead instructor for this particular class. He brought in a lot of people from uh, from those who designed the space shuttle that were still with us. I believe um, Chris Kraft was also one of the guest speakers. Wayne Hale was another guest speaker in this. 
Um, they brought in uh, all sorts of individuals. So there's a lot of trivia sort of built up in there. But uh, Evan, you're exactly right. We could do probably do a whole show on space shuttle trivia, and it, it might be something to, uh, to consider for the future. So Evan, thanks a lot for the idea. I appreciate it. Indeed. Thank you very much, Evan, for your letters. We love getting them from you because they always bring up some interesting topics. All right. Now we've got another email that we'll take a look at, and this will probably be our last one for this evening. And this is from a man by the name of Buck Field. And he says, I'd like to address questions regarding the feasibility of FTL research, FTL staying for faster than light advocating its justification from the perspective of historical revolutions in science, project management, and potential return on investment. And he links to the starshipvlog.com, starshipvlog.com, which talks about that. But, Mark, I think you've been in a couple of talks that relate to FTL, faster-than-light transportation, a little bit, correct? Yeah, and uh, if let's just assume that... Uh, that we had a way that we could get there, you know, and develop that kind of technology and capability. There are problems beyond imagination that would be part of that. For instance, it wouldn't surprise anybody to think that there were small, 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 small particles of essentially dust in interstellar space. What happens if you hit one? going at a utterly ludicrous speed, that would be the end of everything. <laughs> you would be disassembled into particles yourself. That would be the end of your mission. So they looked at, uh, at the, at the uh, 100-year Starship Symposium. They talked about what kind of shielding would we have to develop to protect the spacecraft from the particles that I'm kind of illustrating. They talked about... Uh, you know, could we do this with chemical rockets? Would it have to be atomic propulsion? How could we have that kind of, uh, you know, an atomic energy source and and remain safe from the radiation? Uh, they, they talk about uh, how could we maintain and fix a starship on an extended voyage? And, you know, they talked about multi-generation starships. Faster than light, of course, changes the... the uh, changes the formula as to how you'd get there and what, what you would need to do. But um, that is something that is well worth paying attention to year by year because there are a lot of really smart people that are posing some of these same questions. How do we do this? How do we, and of course part of it is, how do we get from where we are to this place far, far away in our capabilities as we stand today? And uh, it's a, I mean, some really sharp people. I saw the, the name of the gentleman who was chair of one of the panels that, that I sat in for half a day a couple years ago. And he's a scientist uh, researcher. He's part of the team at JPL. And uh, there was another gentleman from Glenn Research Center, uh, people from different places in the, in the whole system of academia, government, and, and science. Um, so the, it's, a, it's a great question. It's something to really wonder about and dream about, and it's incredibly complicated. <laughs> I won't try and answer much more than that, but I hope that gives you a feeling for just how, uh, how, how good a question that is, really, and how, how much it bears a lot of, a lot of thought. And it's going to take some work to get from where we are to some of these far, 
hard to imagine almost science fiction type things. But uh, they say if you can dream it, you can do it. So why not? Yeah, Mark. While you while you were talking here, I, I actually looked on the internet and tried to see if there was actually NASA, if NASA was actually looking into the feasibility of a of a faster than light uh, drive or so on. And yeah, they, actually there are. I'm looking at a, a an article uh, from September of 2012. Uh, I believe, Mark, this might have been presented at uh, at the 100 year Starship too, according to what I'm reading here. Um, this is from a website called Techland.com. Um, apparently what NASA is trying to do is, is to place some sort of spheroid object between two regions of space, two regions of space time, one contracting one, you know, one expanding and creating some sort of warp bubble that moves space time around the object and basically effectively repositioning it in, in space. Um, you, in essence, you got a faster than light drive without, without actually moving the object it's, itself with reference to uh, its, its frame of reference. There's only one little problem with that. It, it just so happens that you need some sort of exotic matter with odd properties to distort space-time. And, and so, you know, that is pretty much the hang-up. But um, uh, I think, too, that they're actually working to get rid of that problem as well. Indeed, and I just have to throw in: anyone else thinking of that scene from the movie Contact anymore uh, right now? Or it's funny, Sawyer. That's exactly what the article mentioned. <laughs> right at the beginning, it's it's that's exactly what the article mentioned. Carl Sagan was definitely barking up the right tree, apparently. Yes, indeed. So yeah, Mark, thanks for your insight on that, and of course, thank you to everybody who sent in the emails. And if we didn't address yours, or if you have a question that you want us to address. Be sure to drop us a line. You can send us your question either as a written, typed-up email or as a short MP3 audio file with your question to mailbag at TalkingSpaceOnline.com, and we may read it here on the show. There's a couple of other ways to contact us. You could use the Contact Us page on our website, TalkingSpaceOnline.com. Of course, you can always send it to us on our Twitter account, which is at TalkingSpace, or you could post it on our wall on Facebook, which is facebook.com slash talking space. And again, thank you to everybody who sent in all those letters and requests and comments and things. We go through them all, so just know that they all have been read. And of course, at this point, we have also gone through all of our stories for tonight, and that brings us to the end of this episode. I'd like to thank everybody who joined us here. I'd like to thank you for joining us, G. McCulka. Thanks, Sawyer. And uh, again, guys, don't forget, we've got a comment in the area, uh, Comet Pan Stars, uh, the, uh, so go ahead and take a take a look look up if you're if you're trying to to find out where to see it. Check out uh, NASA.gov. They've got a really cool setup over there, and a huge shout out to uh, Astronomy FM for all the support they've been giving us over the years. So thanks. Indeed, Astronomy FM will probably have some great programming on that as well. And thank you all so for joining us, Mark Ratterman. And just a heads up, we do have a lot of things that are that are cooking right now. So I would expect that in a few days to a week at most from when this is posted and you listen to this that we will be talking about something that will be very interesting it involves outreach and thrust ooh what could it be I don't know find out with an interview coming up soon but we'll leave you guessing on that in the meantime though we thank you for sticking with us after our two week break 
I think we needed it all here, and now we can give you even better content in the coming weeks ahead. And of course, as always, thank you for joining us tonight. And as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are. Thank you.